Hey guys, it's Clay Reichenbach. Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I previously had former NFL linebacker David Vobora on the show. That is episode 14, and if you've not listened to that episode, you'll want to go back and listen to it. David is an absolute force of nature. His story is incredible. He's a joy to listen to, and his appearance on the show is what led me to today's guest. After my conversation with David, he invited me to his gym, and he invited me to attend the graduation of Class 22 from the Adaptive Training Foundation, which is the Adaptive Training Center he founded for athletes with disabilities. And while I was there, I had the privilege of sitting down with one of their athletes, a gentleman named Keith Murphy. Keith is a military veteran. He's an adaptive athlete who lost his leg in nearly his life in a tragic accident. And now he's a source of motivation and encouragement for others within the gym. And today you're going to hear Keith's story in one of the most emotional and moving episodes to date. Keith really opens up and shares with us what it's like to wake up in a hospital room and find out you're paralyzed. It's a powerful episode. It's a raw description of his experience and his thoughts while he was laying in that hospital bed. He then takes us through how he found his way out of this incredibly difficult experience and how he found his way to the Adaptive Training Foundation and what that community has meant for him. Keith, I just want to thank you for being a part of this, buddy, for sharing your story for walking us through your most difficult time and how you found your way out. I am certainly grateful for our time together and can't thank you enough. Ladies and gentlemen, Keith Murphy. So I understand here at the Adaptive Training Foundation, Jim, you're known as the Deacon. Tell me the story of how that nickname came about. Well, that nickname actually came from David Rabor himself. Uh, when I first got out of the hospital, my voice was really, really scratchy from the ventilator thing that they had in my throat during my time in the hospital. And as I talk, my conversation goes on and on. The longer I talk, the deeper and more raspy that my voice gets. And David came out one day and says, man, you sound like an old Southern Baptist preacher, man. You are now the deacon. And that's how I got that name. You also like to preach and share the word man, with people. Man, I share the word with people. I tell everybody that Christ is my strength. That's how I've been able to accomplish all that I've been able to accomplish. And I talk a lot about Christ while we're here in the gym and about the strength. And that's where we get it from, man. And it, sometimes I do sound like I'm preaching, but hey. Everybody need to know about Christ. I understand you grew up wanting to serve your country. Tell us where that desire to join the military came from. Well, I had a couple uncles that were in the military. And as a small child, me and my dad, we watched Walter Conkright on the news all the time during the Vietnam War. And, and just I just had a zeal to want to serve. I joined the Cub Scouts. And from the Cub Scouts, I joined the Boy Scouts. From the Boy Scouts, the ROTC. And from the ROTC... I joined the army and I really loved it, man. I mean, it was what I wanted to do. And I had been wanting to be this since I was 10 years old. And tell us about your dad, his influence. My dad was a stark patriot 
whoever the president was at the time, their picture was on the wall in our house. American flags in our house. Whether my dad voted for you or not, if you won the presidency, he would support you. That's just he's an American patriot. And that's the model that I had to learn from. And that's where I am. I'm the same way to this very day. If you go to my house right now, the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima is hanging in my kitchen. If you go to the bathroom, I have an iron flag that's the size of that TV there that's made out of cast iron. It weighs about 50 pounds hanging on the wall. There's an American flag hanging outside my house. There's a Texas flag hanging outside my house. When you come up the walkway, you know that there is an American patriot that lives here. Well, I've said this before, even to you, that soldiers, in my mind, take on burdens for the rest of us. Do you feel like you were uniquely equipped from a young age to take on the burdens of others and stand up for others? Yes, I do. Because as a small child, and I do mean in the literal sense, I was a little runt. I didn't like bullies. And if you picked on another kid and I seen it, I would step in and I would defend that other kid because bullies just I I just never could stand them. And I would literally fight someone else for someone because I liked having fun, people smiling. I was one of those kids that the teacher would send a note home, pen to my chest, tell your kid to sit down. He talks too much. He's disrupting the class. But I would finish and do all my work, but now I want to play and have fun. And when I see another kid not having fun because another kid's riding down on him or something like that, yeah, we got to put a stop to that. And you were and, born to stand up for people. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, I was a little tight, man. I was first, second, third grade, man. I was, you know, I was a line leader because I was so short. I was a little bitty guy, man. But I wouldn't let nobody pick on nobody. And I didn't care how big you was. If I had to jump to hit you in the face, <laughs> so be it. But you would not go pick on nobody. You're not go ride down on nobody. And then it just became easier as I became a man. It didn't get too big, but I got tall enough. And now we're going to be a soldier. And it's, I just fulfilled my dream of becoming a soldier. Well, walk us through that. What were the events that led you to join in the Army? I understand you joined right after high school. Yes, I did. My neighborhood. I mean, Dallas, Texas, Oak Cliff. This was 1984. Crack cocaine entered into the Metroplex, and it was just a bad thing, man. And with the drugs being so prevalent, the school didn't get enough orders placed for yearbooks. So the class of 1985 from Franklin Delano Roosevelt High School in Oak Cliff, Texas, Dallas, has no yearbook for that year. And it's so sad because they just the school opened in 1962. And they just now did some remodeling on the school this year. So when we went to the school to look at the remodeling and all the redesigns and the add-ons to the building that they made, in the cafeteria, they have all the previous year's yearbooks on the wall. I mean, there's a big blank where 85 is. And you were you were out of there. You were ready yeah, to go I, to something greater. Mm-hmm, because and to dedicate in, your life to in something the summer greater. of '84, I joined the delayed entry program, and then I was supposed to graduate in May of '85 and take off and go to uh, the army. But what happened? I had enough high school credits to go ahead and graduate at midterm, so I did. I graduated at the Christmas break, and I took off in February. By the time. My high school graduation was supposed to happen. I was graduating the infantry training school at Fort Benning, Georgia, 
and cutting orders to go to Korea. And what were your responsibilities when you were in the Army and in Korea? I was an indirect fire infantryman. I started out as an 11 Bravo, which is a great way to just say it's a basic foot soldier, the boots on the ground guy. Well, I was a support of the boots on the ground guy. I supplied indirect fire of mortars, which were 60 millimeter, 81 millimeter and 107 millimeter mortars, which is nothing but just a big bullet. But my job was to provide fire for the guys on the front line to give them support. Once again, stand up for the yeah. people on the front line. Yeah. yeah. Stand that man, just support. And then even after I got out of the military and married my wife, who was also a soldier, and that's the reason why I got out the army, because after I met her, you know, she was a girl that I thought I would never meet. And I met her in the spring of eighty seven and I married her in the fall of eighty eight. And this coming Monday will be thirty three years that we have been married. I am truly blessed. I mean, beyond measure and words, man, I, I can't tell you after all that I've been through and everything in my life, man, I am blessed beyond measure. I got all these beautiful children. I have beautiful grandchildren. I have my health. I mean, despite my leg being gone, I am healthy. I can get up. I walk when I want to because I got my leg out in the car. I'm not wearing it right now because I'm more comfortable sitting in this chair. And at the age that I am now, it's more about comfort. Walking's overrated. <laughs> Well, I think it's a beautiful mindset to understand that you're blessed and someone who's been through what you've been through, which we'll get into, to still sit here and with a big smile on your face, talk about all the blessings in your life and the things that are more important. Yes. Walking's important, important. but it's not as important as your girls. That's right. It's not as important as your wife. And I think that that's just a beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And then the biggest thing, man, that the hidden thing that I don't even never talk about is what my daughters are seeing. How did dad handle that? How did dad handle that? I mean, they look at people that complain now, like they just don't even want to hear it. They have gotten to a point in their lives at 15 and 17, my two youngest ones that are here with me now, because I have a 30 and a 32. We're, we're a close family. Like tonight's Friday night graduation. We're all going to be at grandma's house after the graduation. My wife, all my kids, my grandkids, it's Friday night family there. I mean, it's just. how it's supposed to be. You're modeling for them who you want them to be. You don't need to tell them because you're showing them. Yeah, I can show you better than I can tell you. I love it, man. Yes. Well said. You are not what you say. You are what you do. Your beliefs don't make you a good person. Your actions do. Your actions do. do. Your actions do. You are not what you say. You are what you do. You don't have to tell someone you love them when you show it. They know it. It's just like with a whole lot of stuff, man. You don't have to tell anybody that you're doing anything. They'll see it when you do it. You don't have to talk about it. Be about it. Well, that's a beautiful outlook on life. And that's something a lot of us mess up on what's really important. And it sounds like you you figured it out at a very early age. Early. Where your value lied and where your identity should be. And that's in those kids and that wife. Yes. Yes. And man. I hated to leave the teams. I did. But when my ETS day was approaching, everybody was asking, you going to re-enlist? You going to re-enlist? I was like, nah, man, I got plans for Dallas. Before we leave your military career, I've sat down with a number of military veterans. And when I asked them what they miss most about the life, 
the story I often get is one of camaraderie, a community of pushing yourself for the benefit of your brother or sister next to you. Mm -hmm. When you look back at your, at your military career, at your military time, what do you miss most? The camaraderie are off the bat that, and then the live fire action. There is nothing like live fire action, be it practicing or the real deal. There is nothing like it. There's nothing like it. When a fire mission comes down, man, and you're getting the guns level up and getting everything set and you fire that first one out, man, and they come back over the radio and tell you it was a good shot, fire for effect, man, and the cannons are rocking, man. There's nothing in the world. Is it because it's exhilarating or is it tied to that brotherhood where you're in it with your brothers and sisters? brotherhood, you're in with your brothers and your sisters, man, and like being able to accomplish a mission under the situations and the stress that we were under to do what we were to supposed to do and get it done in a timely manner. That was the whole thing. Yeah, you can get rounds down range, but can you get the rounds down range in 30 seconds? Can you get a fire for effect in the next 45 seconds? Because them guys down there are taking fire for every second that you don't return fire for them. They're steady taking more fire. Why have a guy under fire for two minutes when you can have him under fire for 45 seconds? So it's tied to the brotherhood. It yeah. doesn't have to do with just sitting there firing rounds. You're nah, fi- man, you're you saving somebody's life down there. You're getting a mission done. And, you know, we, we lived by a creed of no mission too difficult, no sacrifices too great. Duty first. And my duty was to protect my brothers down there. And you've brought that into your civilian into life. Into my civilian life, too. Well, yeah. let's get into your civilian life. So you transitioned. You got married, as you said. You had four kids. And you became a truck driver. Right back to service. How would you describe Keith during these years prior to your accident? How would you have described yourself? Very similar to how we've been talking this whole time? Yeah, very similar. I wasn't like a gym rat, but I kept myself in shape. Skydive, scuba dive, motorcycle rides were still my hobbies. You're a thrill seeker, it sounds like. Like adrenaline, man. Best drug on the planet, You could, man. You had to find that firefight in another another place, it sounds <laughs> <Exactly>. like. Exactly. <laughs> yeah that dopamine man it's addictive and you can't get it nowhere but inside yourself let's talk about that thrill seeking because it ended up changing your life let's go to august 28th 2018 walk us through that day kind of up to the accident what do you remember prior to the accident that day got up early that morning went to the yard got my truck all checked out and was waiting on some loads well, we ain't going to have no lows today. And that was probably about 10 o'clock when I was like, oh, okay, we ain't going to have no lows. And, you know, this is August in Texas. So it's hot, beautiful day, nice, white, fluffy clouds. If you've been here all your life like me, 105 ain't nothing. That ain't no thing for me. Go home, gear up, get on the bike, and turn a few corners, man. Put my backpack on and got geared up and put the two T-shirts in the bag and jumped on the hog, man. Rolled out, riding. You know, wasn't doing no hard, excessive riding. On a beautiful day like today, you know, you ain't chasing down the highway like you're going somewhere or nothing. You're just really just kind of out cruising, enjoying a beautiful day. I was cruising down a side street, 30 miles an hour. I was going south. She was going north. She was looking at her cell phone, wasn't paying attention. She wanted to go west but didn't realize she was running the red light. She ran a red light and T-boned me right in the intersection. Boom. Hit the ground. The concrete was so hot. It 
burned my arm. I mean, my back felt funny. My leg felt funny. There were some EMTs on their lunch break riding by, and they seen it happen. They wheeled around in the road, and they were there within 30, 40 seconds. They were there, and they had already made calls on the radio to get some mobile units rolling. Do you think that had something to do with that saving saved my life? life? I mean, that saved my life because although I was alert, I'm talking about alert enough that when the police got on the scene, I was like, hey, I don't want to catch a felony. Here's my gun. What's your badge number? What's your name? He wrote it down, put it in my Ziploc pants. Like, you know, I got, I got on the gear. So I had on some Kevlar pants with the zip pants, with the pants that zip up, but they're, they're waterproof, like when you zip the pants closed. So I put it off in there, zipped it up. And then uh, they picked me up and gone and put me, they had me on a backboard and they took the backboard and put it on the gurney. And he said, man, your leg looks kind of funny. I said, yeah, my back feels funny too, man. But you're not yeah. feeling pain at this point. You're, you're self-aware, you're self-aware, cognizant. Self-aware and but- I'm, I'm hurting, but not like no broken back, broken neck pain. Wasn't even aware that I was injured as bad as I was. I well, was let me there. get into it for our listeners. You've got seven broken ribs, a broken pelvis, a broken hip a broken back, a dislocated shoulder, collapsed lung, and your left leg above the knee was nearly detached or maybe was detached on the interior. Close to it. Other than that luck of the ambulance coming by, what what do you think saved you? God, nothing but, nothing but. He had plans for you. Man, for real. I mean- Christ know I love him and I'm faithful in him. And he knows, you know, Christ know your heart. You can't fool him. You can lie to people, but you can't lie to God because God made you. He know every hair on your head. You don't even know how many hairs on your head, but he know. So he know that I love him. I appreciate him. I always have ever since I was a little tot, since my mom introduced me to Christ. I've always loved Christ. So Christ saw fit to save my life that day. Put his hands around me, made sure I got to the hospital, made sure all these folks with all this education and time, because these were the real doctors. We're talking about something got to be done right now, and it's got to be done correct. Because if you make a mistake, this dude's out of here. He's dead. And I understand that they had to put you into some sort of, was it a medically induced coma yeah. for eight days? You had to, yeah. for eight days? Eight days out of there. I got a, man, it's like this phone. Just blank. And blank. your wife had to make decisions make decision. to, to mm-hmm. remove your leg. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about waking up in the hospital? Oh, I felt so funny and so weird. I couldn't move, but I was in excruciating pain. When That's I when the t- pain hit. Yep. But I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. I couldn't even go to the bathroom on my own. I couldn't do nothing, man. Couldn't feed myself and. Oh, man, I was hurt, hurt. I wanted to know why and how and da 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 just And that was one of those 2 a.m. talks with God, you know. And that was a good talk because he let me know that, oh, you're going to be all right. You're going to get out of this. And that was maybe two weeks or three weeks in after I woke up, even though I was still paralyzed and not moving. I had the faith that I would do everything that they said I wasn't going to do and more. I had that faith. Well, before we get there, when I'm reading a quote. You said those initial weeks were a very dark place for me. Take us there. What was your mentality? What was your most prominent feeling? Why? 
my biggest thing was I was worried about my family. Whether you could still provide for them. Yeah. It was just, it sounds like uncertainty too. You didn't, you had a path and all of a sudden we can't all relate to that accident, but we can relate to feeling lost and yeah, uncertain. It's like, what am I supposed to do now? If, <laughs> if I don't be paralyzed, what can I do? And I was counting ceiling tiles. And then I started counting the holes in the ceiling tiles. And I was wondering like, okay, is today going to be the day? And then one day, I couldn't take the pain no more. And I hadn't slept in a few days. And I just asked God to take this pain away. And when I woke up, it was the next afternoon. And I wasn't hurting. So you had lost your will there for a bit. Yep. Yeah, my faith was probably at about five to six percent. And wanting to quit was at about ninety-five. But he wouldn't let me. So what turned? What turned for you that next day? The pain relief. Pain is something else. It can rattle you. It can make you crazy. Make you forget who you are. And it'll make you kill yourself. Anything to escape it. When the pain was gone, I had a new outlook and I felt like I could do anything, even though I was still paralyzed. But my mind, my mind was paralyzed. And that's what was the beginning of my recovery even though I was laying flat on my back. Was it the flip of a switch or was this a process? Did it take days and weeks for you to find the strength mentally to know that you were going to be all right? The first, I was down. I'd have good days, bad days. Yeah, I'm going to be good. And then I have days, oh, this is going to be like this forever. But that day when I reached out and I was set pain-free, my mind, I still didn't have a body, but I had the mind. And everything turned in my mind. I guess 
I freed my mind and my ass followed. Did you have a plan at this point or a destination of what it looked like? Or you just knew you were going to start taking steps and eventually those steps were going to lead you to somewhere promising? I had a crazy thought. Because they said I'd never ride or walk again. Started thinking about purchasing a motorcycle. You started setting small goals. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a motorcycle. I'm gonna ride again. I'm gonna be a father again, a husband again. And it sounds like you, you understood that those things that were most important, you still had access to. I was still alive, and I had a crew around me. Couldn't move, but I didn't need to because I had a crew. They would do everything for me, anything I needed. I even had a nurse at my house because after so long, the hospital wasn't good for me anymore. It's just it was a mental drain. I couldn't do it. They didn't want me to go home, but I went home, and I think it helped me to go home. And you had strong community, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, let's talk about where you found community. When did you first hear about the Adaptive Training Foundation? I was still in the hospital. Oh, that quick? My, my daughter went for lunch or something at the cafeteria in the hospital, and there was a pamphlet there. I read the pamphlet, and she logged onto the website, and I took a tour of the gym and clicked on a couple of athletes. And that guy behind you right there, Brian Aft, I clicked on him. And it was a wrap from there. Because I was all pissed off about not having a leg and this guy didn't have no legs. And when I say he was killing it. Yep. So, at that point, I was only sliding off the bed and onto a wheelchair. I couldn't row it. But I had my wife bring me here. And when I came in this building, it spoke to me. There was only three or four people in the gym, so it was a hollowed place. It was just me, my wife, and Hunter. And I asked about what was this place. I had looked at it on the internet and seen a few things, but like really in-depth, what is this place? And he explained to me what it was and I feel that it was divine intervention because that day that we came in was the last day to fill class 15 and the person had to be a veteran. So I filled out the application, got all my paperwork, go get the DD-214 that was in December of 18 and the class was started in January of 19 and at this point I couldn't even lift my hands above my head 
but I was willing to come and give it everything I had. Because I had made up my mind that I wasn't going to quit no matter what. Before we get into what you did here, I, I found a quote and I was really drawn to this quote because what I, I found interesting about the quote was your why. You didn't say you needed to get fit. You didn't say you needed to change your mindset or change your body or change your routine. The quote is, I knew I needed to find people who went through what I went through. And what I'm reading there, Keith, is you knew you needed community. You knew you needed a tribe. Why was that your catalyst? Why was that your why? Because I've been an only child my entire life. And my cousins, they were my brothers, my sisters. So... I've just always had people around me. I knew I still needed people. But I needed people like me. So I could learn from them. They could teach me how to get through this comfortably, functionally. Make it as normal as you possibly can. Your new normal. Because despite what's happened to you, the clocks don't stop ticking. The world does not stop rotating. It's it's up to you to get back in rotation. Because no one really knows that you fell out of rotation. You say you kind of needed people that you that could empathize with you that could know what you went through and show you the way and can show show you the way way and like i mean just little stuff from being safe in the shower just because if you don't know you don't know well i just had the honor with you to watch a two-hour workout here at atf the support for one another the selflessness the self-sacrifice is remarkable. It's inspiring. What is what is the bond, the selflessness that it's created here do for athletes? It gives you the support in your mind that you need because the biggest part of our battle is the mind. Sure, we have injuries and missing parts and things that don't work like they're supposed to, but if your mind is set in a positive manner, the battle is half won. If your mind is set in a negative manner, the battle is lost. Not half, it's lost. So, having the... You come here, and it's like you're on a team. Okay, class 22, that's your team. Class 22 and class 15 together, that's family. Class 22, class 17, class 12, class 3, that's tribe, all family. And we all look out for one another. We might not all know each other personally, personally, close, 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 but we all do know of one another and we indirectly. And you know how we're just still normal people. We're just different. And we have cliques that we click into. 
we all draw to one another. It's not we don't like them. It's just that I like this guy more and we have more in common and we'll go do things. And it's not that we're separating anybody out because if you wanted to come, you can. But we do things a lot more often like Randy Nance. That is my ace boom coon, my buddy. I met him when I first got here. We were in class together and we just kind of gelled and bond together. We're both older around here. You know, I'll be 55 in January and he's a little younger than I am, but we're we're close in age and we see things the same. We both went to some of the same battles. So and we just gelled. And I mean. Outside of us being in class, man, we didn't been on hunting trips together and skiing trips. And we always we're going to we rooming together. That's my roommate. The workout is just a start. Here. Yeah, it's this is just, just, just the beginning. Nine weeks is just the tip of the iceberg. This is a great program, but the life starts after the program. The The program is just a kickstart. To get I want to point out something. You said you're just people. You're just humans. And one of the things, Keith, when I researched it was that pillar that you're going to be treated like a human. You you're are. not going to be tried like a, and so I know you listened to the conversation that I had with ATF founder David Obora and one of the many things we discussed was this no victim mentality here that no one comes in here and gets pitied. No, no one is treated like a victim. In fact, the standards are really high here. They are. And you're going to be pushed. I don't care if you come in like you did, unable to walk, missing a leg. Guess what, Keith? You're going to be pushed. Yes, to your limit. And, and some. I think there's something special about that. You're going to be treated like a human. You're going to be treated. You're going to be expected. You're going to be pushed. What do you think that mentality does for someone who's had a life-changing event like you? I think what it does is it reinforces that no pity parties. You don't have time for it, and we definitely don't have time for it. But for anybody that wants us to pity party them or baby them or whatever, we got a spot for you. And if you really want us to do it, you go sit over there in the sympathy box, and somebody will come to your aid. You're treated like a human. Like again. you're human, man. Yeah. I mean, well, I think no that- special treatments, no no coddling. That's what that's the word I was looking for. No coddling. No. Well, I think that. The environment created here is a natural environment for the self-sacrifice we were talking about earlier. Difficult environments, challenging environments, that's where teams thrive and self-sacrifice thrives. That's earlier today at the end of the workout, they're talking about being a team. And you know this better than anyone being in the military, that humans are hardwired to help one another. They're even hardwired to sacrifice our lives for one another. That's right. And I think an environment like this that is difficult taps into that evolutionary response to help one another, to support one another, and to push one another or motivate one another beyond, beyond what you capacity. think you're capable That's of. Right. Would you say the more meaningful gift is not what the community does for you, but what it allows you to do for others? That is a big gift. That's why I'm back here now. I did 55 weeks here, and then I went back to trucking. For two years. And on the way back from Cincinnati, Ohio, I was hauling a load going to Houston, Texas. And there was something going on here that I was missing and I really wanted to be here. And I called my wife and my wife was like, don't you think you've done enough? Why don't you just quit? You say you believe in Christ. 
step out on faith. How are you going to ever know if you're going to enjoy what you're doing if you don't go do it? And I did that in February of this year. And this is November. It's nine, ten months. And it's been enriching. I'm glad that I quit. You're now giving back. Yeah. Yeah. I help other athletes that have went through similar incidents like I have or or wound up here. Maybe you didn't have a motorcycle accident, but something happened and you've lost a limb. I can help you with that. I lost mine a few years ago, too. And I'll tell you what I do. Oh, this helps me. And, you know, it's just it's just little stuff that we can talk about and. It's kind of like a think tank. We just kick things around about, hey, how does this make you feel? Hey, have you tried this or have you tried that? And it's just a lot of helping each other out. And you then, come full circle. Who was the gentleman yeah. you said you saw without two legs? And you're now right that, now. You're, I'm that guy that somebody's looking at wants to come in and yeah, which exactly. that's by design here. Right. Well, one of the things I've learned in this pursuit, speaking to people like yourself, is that we all face our own challenges, and they don't all look the same. Not all of us lost a limb, but whether or not they resemble yours or not, they're difficult in their own way. That's right. And we can all take something from a story like yours. So what do you tell people that are today where you once were in that dark space? And maybe they're physically struggling. Maybe they're just mentally struggling. What do you say to those people that are in that place? Never quit no matter what. Whatever you got going on right now, it can be better. It can be better than what it is right now. Just by the simple aspect of you thinking it can be better. It's better. And if you want to do something about it, you can make it even better. I would say never quit no matter what. Because if you're still alive, you still got a chance. I know that your leg is hurting. I know maybe your arm, whatever injury that you have, I know it's really on you right now. But I tell you, it's greater later. And like when I was kept messing with this, what I was looking at, I wanted to see how far I am out right now. And I am three years, three months, and 23 days. That's not that long ago. Look how far you've come. Yep, that's it. It's... uh. Three years, two months, 23 days, or 38 months, 23 days, including the end date. 1,180 days. One day at a time? One day at a time. One and brick at a time, and man, you ended and, up building a cathedral. And just try to make every day better than the day before. Keith Murphy, this has been beautiful, man. I I can't thank you enough and can't tell you what an honor it is to sit here while you share what you shared, man. And I just thank you for being a part of this. I was glad to be here, man.